Welcome to Oak Ridge Bible Chapel. My name's Andrew, I'm one of the pastors here at Oak Ridge, and we are so excited to have you join us today. So grab your Bible and then your iPad, a notebook, pens, pencils, whatever it is that will help you get the most out of today's sermon, and please enjoy our Sunday message. C.S. Lewis, the famous 20th century author, he once wrote this. He said, there are far, far better things ahead than any that we leave behind. Do you share in his optimism as a believer? I hope you do. As a Christian, do you believe that your future is immeasurably greater than even your most precious experience so far? Again, I hope that you do. I hope that you can sit here today and say, as a believer, I do long for the future. As good or bad or wonderful as this life has been so far, it's the future. It's what lies ahead that I yearn for. Because after all, this is one of the great privileges that Christ offers his children, is this beauty and this glory that lies ahead. And yet, if we're honest, for Western Christians living in the 21st century, sometimes it can be hard to enjoy this sanctified anticipation. One of the reasons being because we have it pretty good. We're pretty comfortable in this day and age. We have full bellies, warm backs, and dry beds. Some of us might, may say, Lord, it'd be great if you came next week. That'd be fine. Uh, but if you wanted to wait a year or two, that's fine also. You, know, you can come when you want, but we're good. We're okay. We're, we're plodding along here. That's wonderful. And in that way, we have lost, sometimes we've lost the urgency to look to the horizon for the promises that God's given us. Say, I just want those. As good as this is, as bad as this is, I want that. Because that trumps everything I've experienced. And sometimes we lack that. And the Christmas season, as we come into December now and funnel our way down to December 25th, it gives us, as God's people, a unique opportunity to exercise our anticipatory muscles. Right? As we, we kind of go back in time every year and, and wonder what it was like to anticipate the coming of the Messiah. Right? We put ourselves in the sandals of those first century Jews, and we, we wonder, what will it be like when he comes? But at the same time as believers today in the 21st century, we're invited to, as we empathize and, and sympathize with them, we also get to look ahead to the future for us as well. Just like we remember what it was like to anticipate his first coming, now we get to remind him and, and stoke our anticipation for that second coming, and that is our prayer. And so to those ends, our goal over the next few weeks here is to kind of stoke the flames of our anticipation for Christ's coming. And so we want to spend a few weeks in the book of Isaiah, in the book of Isaiah. And we want to look at a handful of promises given to God's people that were given to them to give them hope. To give them hope in the future. And so if you have a Bible with you, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 1. We'll actually be in Isaiah chapter 7 mainly this morning, but I want to take a running start at Isaiah chapter 7. So Isaiah chapter 1. This morning, essentially, we're going to look at problems and promises. As we'll see in a moment here, God's people in Isaiah's time, they had a ton of problems. And maybe believers in the 21st century have some problems as well, right? We'll be reminded of that also. But it's into those problems that God brings his word of hope. He makes them promises. And these are promises that we can cling to as well. And so that's what we're going to see. We're going to see problems and promises. 
But we've got to start with the bad news. So let's look at the problems facing Israel at this time. And there were, there were many as we come to the book of Isaiah. In fact, just scanning the first few chapters, we see that in Isaiah's day, the people of Judah, and that is, remember, the southern kingdom of Israel after this split, the southern kingdom, Judah, Judah, were, they were in total rebellion against God at this time. Complete rebellion. In fact, look at chapter 1, starting in verse 2. This is God speaking through Isaiah. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from him. So we have this problem of rebellion that had gone all the way through the nation of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. And this, this rebellion, it brought with it the divine problem of God's anger. Then we scan across the page to verse 13 of the same chapter. This is God speaking, bring your worthless offerings no more. Incense is an abomination to me. New moons and, and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. And we could sum that up by saying God is fed up with his stubborn, obstinate people, these spoiled, entitled, insubordinate people. He's fed up. And let's face it, when the all-powerful, all-knowing God of the universe is angry with you, we've got problems, right? So Israel's got some major problems. And it doesn't stop there. There was also God's coming vindication that he promised, his coming judgment. It's on the horizon. If we look to chapter 2, verse 12. For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty and against everyone who is lifted up that he may be abased. You say, well, who's proud and lofty? Kind of sounds a little bit like Judah that we just read, right? They think a lot of themselves. They think they don't need Yahweh anymore. So this day that's coming, this day of judgment, it should bring fear in their hearts. Chapter 3, verse 1, For behold, the Lord God of hosts is going to remove from Jerusalem and Judah both supply and support, the whole supply of bread and the whole supply of water, the mighty man and the warrior, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the, the captain of fifty and the honorable man, the counselor and the expert artisan, and the skillful enchanter. He's going to remove them all. In verse 13 of chapter 3, The Lord arises to contend and stands to judge the people. I think that's enough to get the picture. Israel's got problems. They got a lot of problems. Their rebellion has led to God's righteous anger, and now they are in the crosshairs of his righteous judgment. And it's into that mess that the problems of chapter 7 sit. As we come to chapter 7, turn there now. Isaiah chapter 7, we find even more problems. In fact, the first two verses, it, it tells us that there were enemy armies 
starting to gather at the border of Israel, starting to come in. So not only do they have problems rebelling against God and God's anger against them, but now they have enemies encamping on the horizon, coming to take what is theirs. Chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Now it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. When it was reported to the house of David, saying, The Arameans have camped in Ephraim, his heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. So here we have two nations, Aram, or your translation may say Syria, and Israel, that's the northern kingdom who had long since left Yahweh. So we have these two nations who are teaming up against Judah in the south. And though they had not yet been successful, it says, but they could not conquer it, it seems they were readying to try again. They gathered their troops once again. Maybe they had just fallen short the last time. They're going to give it another swing, and it's causing the people in Judah great fear. It's causing them to shake in their sandals like trees in the forest in the wind. They are terrified. And the Lord actually confirms this threat. He confirms this threat by sending Isaiah to Ahaz, Judah's king. Scan down to verse 5. This is right in the middle of God's message to the king. He says, Because Aram with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has planned evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrorize it, and make for ourselves a breach in its walls, and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. So Syria and Israel, they are coming to take over, to punch a hole in those walls and to march in, take over, and set their own puppet king up on Judah's throne. Which, if you remember, that is a throne that God promised in perpetuity to David's house, that there will be a son of David in the line of David always on that throne. And here come these foreign armies, and they're coming in to say, no, we're, we're taking that throne. So not only are these armies on the horizon marching against Judah, not only are they a threat of national security, they really are, but it's also a threat against God's faithfulness. Because he's made a promise about that holy chair. He's made a promise about that throne, and these nations are coming to take it. This is a threat not only of the lives of Judah, but also a threat against God's ability to keep his covenants with Israel. It's a big deal. There are all sorts of problems here. God's people have problems, and those problems are gathering outside their gates with weapons raised and violence in their eyes. It's a big deal. But they also have problems inside their gates. It's not just out there. they got problems within their own camp. Throughout their history, you may know this, but, but Israel has had a long stream of kings, some of them good and others terrible, really, really bad. And Ahaz, this current king, is more of the latter group. He's terrible. In fact, his biography, or at least one biography, is given to us in 2 Kings chapter 16. Listen to this. This is a description of the king who is sitting on the throne in Isaiah 7. In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Ramalia, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, became king. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. That's the northern kingdom who had long since left Yahweh. He walked in the way of those kings and even made his son pass through fire. In other words, he sacrificed his own son. 
according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had driven out from before the sons of Israel. He sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills, and, and under every tree. That's just a snapshot. He's not a good king. Ahaz here, though he's from the line of David, he is, was an idol-worshipping, Yahweh-abandoning king who led Israel into the apostasy we read about in the first number of chapters. And yet God was gracious with Ahaz, wasn't he? He's still gracious with him. In fact, scan down to verse 10, Isaiah 7, verse 10. It says, Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz. Hang on a second. The Lord spoke to this king? This wicked king who hates Yahweh, who sacrificed his own son to some foreign god, and Yahweh comes to speak to this king. What an act of grace to speak to this king. What does he say? Verse 11. Ask for a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. In other words, in other words God gives him a blank check. He says, name it. You want to know that I'm with you, Ahaz? You want to know that I'm still with Judah, that I'm still your God, that I've got your national back? Name it. I will do it and prove to you that I am still with you. Well, how does Ahaz respond? Verse 12, but Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. This sounds on its face like okay, an okay response, but really, as we'll learn, this is just false piety. It's masquerading, it's pretend reverence, and Isaiah sees right through it in verse 13. Then he, that's Isaiah, said, Listen now, O house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men, that you will try the patience of my God as well? You can hear the, the tone shift. He'll give you a sign. Listen here, house of David. And there's also a pronoun shift, you'll notice. In verse 11, he says, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. But then you come to verse 13, that you will try the patience of my God as well. In other words, it's not your God, Ahaz. You've proved that time and time again. Yahweh is not your God. See, God's people, they had problems everywhere. Inside, outside, upside down. They had it absolutely everywhere. They had it inside their walls. They had it inside their palace. They had it inside their own hearts. And they had it outside the walls also. And we still have problems. You fast forward a number of millennia, centuries later, and God's people today still have problems. And we need to remember that rebellion against God still brings divine discipline, doesn't it? In fact, in Revelation chapter 3, the glorified Christ speaking to a church says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. When we today as believers, as God's people, walk in rebellion against him, and we sometimes do, or at least I do, when we do that, we are incurring judgment. We are incurring discipline as a loving father disciplines. That's, that's, that's a problem for us. Those who can't consistently walk in faithfulness to God, it's a problem. We've got problems in our own hearts. We also know that judgment is still coming. The Lord will still vindicate himself. We've got, still got enemies outside the walls and inside the walls of the church also. In fact... In 1 John, the letter that John wrote, he writes this in chapter 3, verse 13. He says, Do not be surprised, brethren, if the whole world hates you. Jesus said this to his disciples before he left them as well. The world hates me, it's going to hate you. you got enemies outside your ranks. They're coming in. The enemies are after you. 
We've also got enemies inside, though, as well. Same letter, 1 John chapter 1, he says, If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth's not in us. So the enemies aren't only out there, it's actually in here as well, isn't it? Remember Romans 7, 7 when, when Paul is lamenting his old nature. He says, The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I do want to do, I don't do. Oh, wretched man that I am, he says. Who will deliver me from this body of death? We still have the old person in there, don't we? So we have problems today. We have problems outside, inside. We have problems everywhere. And this is one of those truths that, that can oftentimes be overlooked today. It can be ignored and it can be rejected. We like to focus on the positive, don't we? We like to smile. That's a good thing, not necessarily a bad thing, but, but we have to understand that we still have problems. We like to talk like the church is making headway in the culture. The church is winning the culture. The church is, is, is doing its thing and, and taking down all these strongholds. We can do this. There's almost this militaristic attitude to the church. We're taking it for Jesus. We think, you know, if we think positively, positive things will then happen, right? We can manifest these positive things. People are generally good. They just need permission to be the good selves that they truly are. We say things like that. But the issue is when we downplay our problems, when we downplay the problems we have, at least a couple of things happen. First, is that we fail to give God the credit he's due for his patience and grace. That's one thing. It's like a young child bragging about their independence, saying, my, my parents kind of helped me a little bit, right? Well, they're not giving their parents the full credit they're due for all that they provide for them. They would not survive without those parents. And when we, we as God's people downplay the problems we have outside, inside, everywhere, then we are not giving God the credit he's due for sustaining us and delivering us and loving us in spite of our rebellion. The second thing that happens when we downplay our problems is that we hinder our anticipation for the future. Downplaying the problems in this world, in the church, in our own hearts, when we ignore them, reject them, uh, explain them away, when we do that, it stops us from longing for the day when we won't have those problems. Because that day is coming. There is a day coming when the issues in my heart will be no more. The issues in this world will be no more. The issues within God's people will be no more. But if I ignore them, if I downplay them, then I don't long for the day when I will be free from them. It's the asthmatic that most appreciates a good deep breath. It's the financially burdened that are most relieved by a good tax return, right? People who don't need it, it's just it's not a big deal, but the people who really need it, who know that they need it, <sighs> cash that, it's, it's life-giving, isn't it? It's the lonely who most enjoy a loving visit, and it's the sick who most celebrate the word remission, and it's the sinner that most loves forgiveness. It's those who see the brokenness of this world that most, that most anticipates the perfection to come. And that's what we want. We know that Jesus has overcome the world, but we still live in a broken world, don't we? Full of broken people. No sense burying our head in the sand and ignoring it. We say, no, it is broken. And that makes me long for a time when this brokenness will be completely fixed. So let's be honest about the problems that we have. Just like Israel was being faced, to, faced with the problems that they have, inside, outside, upside down, everywhere. They had all sorts of problems. Now, as we've seen, Judah's world back in Isaiah was broken. They had problems both inside and outside, which makes it even more amazing that it's into that mess that God issues the words of hope. 
It's into all their rebellion. It's into all their brokenness. It's into all their obstinance that God brings messages of hope. And so let's shift now from the problems to the promises. Specifically, it's a promise of deliverance. He promises to deliver them from their enemies. So with enemies gathering and God's people shaking, verse 2, as the trees of the forest shake in the wind. I love that picture. Verse 3 of Isaiah chapter 7. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and your son, Shear Bashab, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool, on the highway to the fuller's field. I love that too, that God not only knows the threat against them and knows what the king needs to hear, he also knows where the king's going to be. He says, go and find him, and here's where he's going to be. And what does he say? Verse 4, and say to him, take care and be calm. Have no fear, and do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands on account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Remelia. Because Aram with Ephraim and the son of Remelia has planned evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrorize it and make for ourselves a breach in its walls and set up the son of Debeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. God says to evil wicked Ahaz, that threat will fail. That threat will come to nothing. Syria and Ephraim used to be firebrands, and now they're just embers. They used to be bonfires of power, but now they're, they're smoldering, fading cigarette butts on a wet floor. They're fading away. They will not stand. There is nothing to worry about. Why? Verse 8, for the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin. Now, within another 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered so that it is no longer a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remelia. If you will not believe, you surely shall not last. Why do you not have to be afraid? Because unlike Judah, whose head is Yahweh, the all-powerful God of the universe, unlike you, unlike you, Judah, all of these other nations, who are their heads? What well, says there? The head of, the head of, the head of... Their head is just people. It's just men. You've got Yahweh. They've got men. So don't worry. Don't worry. Their time is coming to an end. But he says God's people must live by faith in the promises of God's power and deliverance. He says at the end of verse 9, if you will not believe, you surely shall not last. And then as we read earlier, you know, Ahaz is offered proof from God, isn't he? You, you don't believe me. Maybe this is hard to believe. Maybe those, those armies out there look intimidating. And you're saying, yeah, right, God. Look at them. Look at what's left of our nation. And look at all of those. And Ahaz is struggling. So God comes and says, I will give you proof. And we saw that the king foolishly turns it down and says, I don't need proof. I'm too pious for that. As we keep reading, God gives him one anyway. I love that. No, I don't want proof. Well, too bad. You're getting proof. Here it is. Verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. And now we're in familiar territory, aren't we? Up until now, you're like, I didn't even know this was in the Bible. And now you're like, oh yeah, now I recognize this. Now we're into a Christmas message. But let's try for a moment, if you can, to suspend what you know about the Incarnation. Suspend what you know about the Word taking on flesh, and let's try to read this first as Ahaz would have heard it, okay? So God here is promising his sinful people deliverance from those enemies, from those enemies, uh, solving that problem, right? That's what he's promising them. 
they, like their king, might find it hard to believe, and so God offers them proof. A woman, unnamed, maybe Ahab doesn't even know who she is, but a woman who at the time of this prophecy was a virgin, will soon marry, conceive, and have a child, who, well herself ignorant of the prophecy, she doesn't know what's going on here, right? But she has this child, and she's going to name him Emmanuel, which means God with us, or, or God is with us. So hypothetically, Ahaz hears this prophecy, he leaves the chamber, he goes out and searches the kingdom, finds this woman, she's holding little Manny there, and he says, aha, God was true, he made this promise, and there is the sign, right there, that's all the proof I need. I don't know if he did that or not, but he could have, right? There is the proof that God's promise will come to pass. But there's more to the promise, verse 15. He, speaking of this child, will eat curds and honey at the time, he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. So there's an age when he's to moral accountability, he can tell good from evil, and up until that point, he will have a diet of curds and honey, which was the diet of the poor, which maybe is because they're in wartime. There's a tax coming, he's going to be on a diet of curds and honey, poverty-stricken. Verse 16, for before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. So during those early poverty-stricken years of his life, both of those attacking nations will be gone. That's when I'll do it, God says. And so really what we have here is not only God giving his people a promise in the midst of their rebellion and their problems, he gives them a promise, but he also gives them a sign to confirm that promise, and then he also gives them a countdown to its fulfillment. You find this child, you will know by the time he gets to this certain age, your problem will be dealt with. So there's actually a countdown, a clock is ticking. There's a time coming soon for Judah when the desperate and doubtful request will become a joyful declaration. When them saying, God, you need to be with, with us, will become, God, you are with us. And that time is not far away, Isaiah says. And by the way, history has confirmed that within 12 years of Isaiah delivering this prophecy, both nations were gone. Both kings were dead. Nations were gone. Assyria, God used a superpower of the day to come in and wipe them off the face of the earth. God made a promise, gave a sign of that promise, and then kept that promise. And all this directed toward a rebellious, fickle people, riddled with problems, some outside and many inside. We just have to say, what grace? The common definition for grace is unmerited favor. I don't know what else to call this. Unmerited favor. What hope that they were given. Now, let's turn to Matthew chapter 1. We've been waiting for it, right? As soon as you read chapter 7, verse 14, got to get to Matthew chapter 1. Well, here we go. Because centuries later, Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, picks up on Isaiah's prophecy in Matthew chapter 1. Starting in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph... Before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had conspired this, or considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit." She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Just as God saw all the problems facing his people in Isaiah's day and graciously promised them miraculous deliverance if they would believe in him, so he does always. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And because God knows people, he knows that some of us more than others are thick-headed, you know, present company included, because he knows people, God offers us evidence. Not only does he promise, but he gives us evidence to bank on. Not because he needs to give evidence because of his character, but because we need it, because we are prone to disbelief. He gives us reasons to trust his promises of deliverance. And it's not because we're owed proof, but because he is generous and loving. And the sign for Ahaz in the house of David was the birth of an Emmanuel that started the countdown to their deliverance. And the sign for all humanity was the birth of the Emmanuel that started the countdown for our deliverance. Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah, the promised serpent-crushing, world-blessing, peace-bringing, earth-ruling, God-revealing seed of the woman, took on flesh, cooing and crying in a manger to deliver us from the problems we face outside and inside ourselves. Now, as we start looking forward to the Christmas season, Isaiah 7 here, it reminds us to trust in God's promises. That as we inch toward December 25th, we're reminded that God makes promises and he wants us to bank on them. He wants us to, to hear them, understand them, and, and treat them like they are so. He reaches down into our rebellion, past evil leadership, through our undeservedness, and graciously offers deliverance if we should believe. Trust God's promises. As we close, I want to address three groups of us in here that I know are here with us today to help us understand how, as we approach the Christmas season, how we can better trust in God's promises. The first group is those of you who are here that need to trust in God's promises for the first time. Maybe you've never trusted in God's promises. You know, perhaps you've never heard that you even have problems. Yeah, I didn't know that I had problems. You know, the world has taught me I'm pretty good. Or good enough, at least, right? That is what the world has taught me. I don't know that I have problems. You know, maybe you've learned that morality is subjective and relative, and that there's no ultimate standard to which we must measure up. Well, that's not what God says. God says actually the very opposite at spots. God says that he's actually the standard. While some people don't believe there is a standard, God says, no, no, I'm the standard. You must live up to my standard. That his holiness, his perfection is the benchmark all people must meet if we are to spend eternity with him. Multiple times in the Bible he says, be holy, for I am holy. That's the standard. Unfortunately, God also says that not one of us has or can live up to that standard. All have fallen short of the glory of God, the Bible says. Some of us may think we get pretty close, like my wife, Patricia, is just under, I think she's just under that level. <laughs> Some of us miss it by a mile, right? But here's the issue. We all miss it. It doesn't matter how close you think you are to perfection. You would have to be deluded to think that you are perfect. And God says that's the standard. It's not pretty good. 
It's not good in the world's eyes. It's not good in your best friend's eyes. It's none of that. The standard is holiness. And all have sinned and fallen short of that standard. And it gets worse because there are consequences to falling short. God says that when we fall short, the wrath of God is the penalty. That death is the consequence to missing the mark. That is the price we must pay for missing the mark. And when the Bible speaks of death, it speaks not only of physical death, but spiritual death. Separation from God for eternity. You see, we've got huge problems. And if you've never trusted in Christ, you've got a huge, huge problem inside and outside. But here's where God swoops in. Here's where he comes into your mess, just as he's come into the mess of virtually everyone in this room here today. He comes into our rebellion. See, God made a promise of deliverance to the world, that he was going to provide a way of salvation, a way of forgiveness, a way of reconciliation between sinners and a holy God. And he did this through his son, Jesus, who lived a perfect life, died a sinner's death, and rose from the dead. And God promises that all who believe in Jesus have eternal life, current possession. We have eternal life. If you've never done that before, today is the day of salvation. Why not? In a moment, you just talk to the Lord and say, I am a sinner. I got problems. Inside, outside, everywhere, I've got problems. You've provided the remedy. I'm throwing myself on your mercy, and I'm believing in Jesus Christ. Be reconciled to God. Take him up on his promise of ultimate deliverance by believing God's promise for the first time. What a Christmas gift that will be. Best one you open in your whole life. The second group that I want to talk to is those of you who need to trust God, trusting God's promises in a hard time. Some people need to trust him for the first time, but some of us need to trust him in the hard times. And I know that this season, in spite of all the bells ringing and the songs playing, is not celebratory for everyone. It's a hard time of year for a lot of people. It's a time of bad memories and grief and need and fear. We recognize that. And if that's you, Isaiah is lifting your eyes to your promise-making and promise-keeping God. Look to him. Look to him. He's promised you his presence, has he not? I will never leave you nor forsake you. He's with you. He's promised you his ear. You can talk to him anytime you want. You can bury your soul to him. He wants that. You can draw near to the throne of grace because of Jesus Christ. It's a promise. He's promised you comfort. He is the God of comfort. All comfort, isn't it? So we can draw near to him in spite of the pain, in spite of the, the harshness of the reality, in spite of the problems we face. May you be able to say with confidence this month, as December 25th draws nearer, may you be able to say with confidence, Emmanuel, God is with me. Jesus is near. Trust God's promises in the hard times. And finally, the third group is actually all of us. It's all of us. We need to trust God's promises in the meantime. That is, while we wait for eternity. And now we circle back to where we start, this anticipation. We long for what lies ahead. Ahaz and Judah in Isaiah chapter 7 were given a promise of deliverance. But there was a time of waiting, wasn't there? They had to wait for this child to grow up. They had to wait a certain amount of time before the deliverance came to fruition. The Hebrews were, were promised a Messiah, one to deliver them, to establish a kingdom, but they had to wait. They waited until they found him in a manger. And Christians today, we've been promised, oh, we've been promised resurrection. 
We've been promised glory. We've been promised peace and unending joy. But we've got to wait for it, don't we? We've got to wait for it. It's all as certain as the fall of Syria and the arrival of that baby Jesus. It's coming, for sure, but we have to wait. It's been promised, though, from a God who cannot lie. And so, so we wait. We trust in God's promises. In the meantime, in spite of everything we're dealing with, in spite of all the problems, in spite of all the successes as well, God has blessed us, and we endure those, but we know that even the best memory we have in this life will be a shadow in the life to come. So we long for it. We grow our anticipation as we come closer to Christmas. So this Christmas season, as we try and remember what it was like to anticipate the birth of Jesus, let's not forget to anticipate the return of Jesus, when we will declare fully and forever, Emmanuel, God is with us. Let's pray together. Thank you so much for joining us today. For more sermons, blogs, and other resources, you can check out our website, oakridgebiblechapel.org. To listen to our weekly podcast, Word Processing, you can go to Spotify or Apple Podcasts or any other podcasting platform. Remember, you can always join us in person or on our live stream at 10.30 a.m. on Sundays. Thanks for watching.